Once again, to turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, and uh, we'll be concluding this chapter uh, uh, this evening. John chapter 7, and tonight we want to look at Jesus causes divisions. Let's look at verses 40 here, at verse 40, and uh, just read down uh, through the end of the chapter to get the the text here. Beginning in verse 40, it says, Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is uh, the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the Scriptures said, that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was. So there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees and said unto him, Why have ye not brought him? And the officers said, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night being one of them, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went into, unto his own house. You know, as a preacher, as, uh, sometimes I'm disappointed, sometimes discouraged when people do not respond to uh, the preaching as I hope and I pray. Uh, that's especially true when I believe I've preached a clear, compelling gospel message, but no one responds to the invitation or I don't hear of any decisions that were made. Uh, And I realize that I am not responsible for the harvest. I am responsible as a uh, minister of the gospel, as a preacher, to be faithfully planting the seed and water the seed maybe someone else has planted. And then along is going to come someone else, perhaps, to receive the harvest, because it is God that gives the increase. But the Lord Jesus often experienced negative and hostile reactions to his preaching. As we saw in John chapter 6, after Jesus gave the wonderful message about being the bread of life, uh, offering that whoever was hungry and ate of him would never hunger, uh, they would have eternal life, and some even professed to be his disciples, and yet they walked away, and they just couldn't handle his comments about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But now, we see, as we saw earlier this morning in our morning's message, after Jesus gave the open appeal in John chapter 7, verse 37 to 38, this is what we talked about this morning. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And the crowd's response was both mixed and mixed up. Some thought... He was the promised prophet. Others went so far as to venture that he was the Christ, while others disputed that idea. The Jewish leaders wanted to arrest and execute Jesus. But the officers that they sent to arrest him came back empty-handed. 
And as we saw there in verse 46, they said, never man speaketh like this man. And then Nicodemus, whom we met in chapter 3, he tries to check this murderous intent of the Sanhedrin and he is rebuked. John chapter 7 verse 43 sums up the overall flavor of this section. And it says there, so there was division among the people because of him. Now, do you think Jesus as being decisive, divisive? I mean, is that the way we think of Jesus? Is he divisive? You know, we like to think of Jesus' words in John chapter 13, where he says that by our love, the world will know that we are his disciples. Or we think of his prayer in John 17, that his followers would be unified so that the world would know that the Father had sent him. And so we all join hands and we sing, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. And yet Jesus and division don't seem to go together. Now remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. He said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. So we don't have a true perspective of Jesus unless we see him in part as one who divides people. Now, why does Jesus cause division? Well, one reason is that he is the truth. And truth necessarily divides. Now, either you're going to believe the truth or you're not. There's a division right there. And although the postmodernists today want us to think that, well, there's no such thing as absolute truth, you know, in the philosophy, uh, uh, philosophic or religious realm. And that means that postmodernism is not absolutely true. Or if there is truth, well, we just can't know it. You know, Jesus drew a distinct line in the sand when he said in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Or as Peter boldly proclaimed in Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among, uh, among men whereby we must be saved. There aren't different ways to God. You know, the familiar slogan, it doesn't matter what you believe just as long as you're sincere. Well, that doesn't work. Or as some would say, well, we're all worshiping the same God. We're just getting there different ways. That doesn't work. Not according to the Bible. Faith in Jesus Christ as revealed in the apostolic witness of the New Testament is the only way to God. You know what? That is divisive. And so here we learn that Satan hates the truth about Jesus, and so he makes sure that there's always many, often even in the church, who oppose truth. 
We see this even in the pages of the New Testament. Acts chapter 20, verse 29 through 30. Paul warned the Ephesian elders, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. And there are many other warnings in the letters of Paul and Peter and John Warnings about false teachers that plagued the church. And we're not to forge a bond of unity with such false teachers, but rather we're to draw clear lines of division. And no matter how lovingly we act or how pure our motives, we often face opposition even from those in the church when we separate from those who oppose the truth. But to be like Jesus, we must sometimes do just exactly that. Now we're going to go through this text, the remainder of this chapter, and we're going to show how Christ caused this division, both among the religious people and the religious leaders. So notice some practical, and then we'll have some practical lessons from this as well. First of all, there was a division among the religious people. Christ causes division among religious people. That's verses 40 through 44. And there are three different views among this crowd. First, there is the inadequate view. Verse 40 tells us, Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Now, they had a correct view, but it was inadequate. This refers to the prophet that Moses had predicted in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, where it says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Well, in Jesus' day, the common view was that the prophet and the, and the Christ were two separate people. Now, as we saw in John 1, Verses 20 through 21, John the Baptist denied that he, that is John the Baptist, was the Christ. But then the delegation from Jerusalem asked him, Art thou that prophet? In John 6 and verse 14, after Jesus had fed the multitude with the five loaves and the two fish, the people connected the dots with Moses giving the Israelites manna in the wilderness and proclaimed, this is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. And so they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him a king. Certainly Jesus was the prophet of whom Moses spoke about. And he was much greater than Moses, both in the signs that he performed and in the teaching that he gave but by itself, just to believe Jesus was the prophet is an inadequate view. A prophet, no matter how great, could not authoritatively claim what Jesus just claimed. That who would ever come to him and drink of him would have rivers of living water gushing up inside of him and flowing out from him. Only God in the human flesh could make that claim. I think there are many people today who think highly of Jesus, they think highly of his teaching, but they do not believe him at, and that he is God. They do not submit their lives to him as their Lord and God. They have a correct view, but it's an inadequate view. 
Secondly, there's an uncommitted view. This is in verse 41. Others said, this is the Christ, but some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Again, they had a correct but uncommitted view of Jesus. This is the Christ. Now the words, the phrase there, the Christ, that was God's promised Messiah, the anointed one, the Redeemer and the King who would reign on David's throne. And while that view is absolutely correct and a step up from viewing Jesus only as a prophet, it was inadequate because it does not reflect any personal commitment or submission to Jesus as Lord and Christ. The text seems to indicate that they held their views as a point to maybe debate with the others and not as disciples who were willing to follow him. You know, some people just like to debate. They just like to argue. And that's what they were doing here. And as Jesus pointed out to the Jewish leaders, the Christ is both David's son and David's Lord. Psalm 2 is clear that God sets his Christ upon his throne and that he rules over the nations. And so the bottom line, according to Psalm 2 and verse 12, it says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Now God's salvation is only for those who bow before Jesus as their king and trust him as their refuge. But you know, again, there are many even today who might say, I believe in Jesus as my savior. But they don't live in submission to him as their Lord. I think sometimes we take this very lightly. We say, Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. We even refer to him as Lord in our prayers. Lord Jesus. And we we, uh, talk to him uh, in that term. We give him that title, but then our lives do not submit to him as Lord. A Lord is someone who is in charge and someone who we are to be submissive to. And people don't bow before him as their king. These Jews thought that Jesus was the Christ. And they had orthodox, that is right doctrine. They had orthodox heads, but they had heterodox hearts. That's wrong doctrine, hearts. Someone has said, unless our hearts are affected and our lives molded by God's word, we are no better off than a starving man with a cookbook in his hand. What good is a cookbook if you don't have the food? You don't have the ingredients. In other words, an intellectual belief in Christ without the accompanying obedience to him is useless. Saving faith is obedient faith. So there's an inadequate view. There's an uncommitted view. And then there's what we're going to call the rejection view. See this in verses 41 and 42. Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was? Now, some rejected Christ's claims outright for a flimsy reason that was really an excuse. This group denied that Jesus was the Christ because they knew the Christ was not going to come from Galilee, but rather from the lineage in the city of David, from Bethlehem. Well, here's another example, perhaps, of some tongue-in-cheek irony. 
John assumes that his readers either know that Jesus really was born in Bethlehem and that he came from the lineage of David, or that if they don't know, they will dig a little deeper to try to resolve this uh, seeming problem. But if his readers adopted the same approach as the group of critics, they would end up rejecting Jesus for a flimsy reason, a reason that was really nothing but an excuse. You see, these critics took pride in their theological knowledge and they loved to point out their knowledge of the truth. And their argument was like this. The Messiah does not come from Galilee. Jesus comes from Galilee. Therefore, Jesus cannot be the Messiah. So that's airtight. If, if I say, the two premises are true. The first one is true. The Messiah does not come from Galilee. But the second one is not true in the terms of Jesus' birth and lineage. Therefore, the conclusion is false. Well, to hold to this sort of reasoning, these critics had to ignore what Jesus had just done in previous chapters here, the many miracles and some which they had no doubt seen with their own eyes and they heard the credible reports of. And they had to dismiss Jesus' powerful teaching which even the arresting officers had to admit there was no teaching like this that they'd ever heard before. And they had to shrug off Jesus' astounding claims such as the one he had just issued to be able to give rivers of living water to all who believed him. But the truth is they weren't really interested in believing in Jesus. If they had been interested, they could have cleared up the question of his origin very quickly, very easily. But they didn't want to believe. They wanted a comfortable excuse to reject them. They would have seized Jesus if they could, but they could not lay their hands on him because God is sovereign over his enemies. God was not going to let them put their hands on him until the time was right. Like these critics, many liberal theologians even today come up with all sorts of reasons why Jesus could not have done these miracles that even eyewitness accounts of the New Testament attribute to him. And their argument is like this. Miracles contradict modern science. Thus, miracles are not possible. Therefore, Jesus' miracles could not have happened as they were reported. You see, that's the same kind of thinking that the people had earlier. They're rejecting the Lord's teaching. They debate over the words of the Gospels and that Jesus really spoke and which were put in his mouth by later authors, later people. And yet with these flimsy reasons that we would really call excuses, they don't believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. So Christ causes division among these religious people. But then notice there's division among the religious leaders Christ causes division among the religious leaders, and this goes through the end of the chapter. Again, we encounter three parties here, three groups of religious leaders. First, there were the temple guards. That's in verse 45 and 46. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? And the officers answered, Never man spake like this man. The temple guards were impressed with the way Jesus spoke, but They were too fearful to believe. The temple guards 
who were Levites, came back from their mission to arrest Jesus, they came back empty-handed. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees asked them, why did you not bring him? And the guards easily could have said, well, it's because the crowd would have been upset with us, and so we just didn't want to do that. But instead, they they candidly admit, never man spake like this man. And although the guards did not intend this meaning, I think John probably wants his readers to think exactly. Precisely, Jesus is not just a man. But the impression is that these temple guards were too fearful of the chief priests and the Pharisees to take a bold stand with Jesus. That would have meant they would have lost their jobs. So they kind of just fade from view. And I think in the same way, there are many in our day who are impressed with Jesus' eloquence and his wisdom. They think he's a great man, he was a brilliant religious teacher, but they don't see him as the eternal word of God in human flesh, and so they don't believe him as their Savior and Lord. And out of fear, what others may think, they don't take a public stand, a bold public stand of faith in Christ. Well, then you have the Pharisees. The second group, this is in verse 47 through 49, and then in verse 52 as well. It says, Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed of him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. You know, the Pharisees were arrogantly disgusted with anyone who was at all favorable toward Jesus. And the arrogance and the contempt of the Pharisees for anyone who would, was even remotely supportive of Jesus is not disguised here. They suspiciously asked these temple officers, Are ye also de- uh, deceived? Are ye, uh, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? Again, I think this is some irony here. John is kind of setting the stage uh, for Nicodemus and what he protests here in verse 51. But then, Referring to the general crowd that was thronging the temple feast, the Pharisees arrogantly pronounced, but this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. John wants us to see that it is really the proud Pharisees who are under this curse because of the wrath of God and that it abides on all who do not obey the Son of, the Son of, of God. So virtue by, uh, by virtue of their position, These religious leaders, the Pharisees, should have been loving, caring shepherds over God's people. That's what their job was. That's what their responsibility would have been. They were to teach the word of God. They were to bind up their wounds. They were to lead them by example in the ways of the Lord. But here they show their true colors. They despise the common people as ignorant. Even when one of their own, Nicodemus, points out that they are violating the law that they proclaim to know by judging a man without hearing his case. They reviled him as being in a Galilean as well. And so these Pharisees lived in Jerusalem, the capital, and they viewed the northern Galileans as a bunch of ignorant hicks from the sticks. They hated Jesus because he repeatedly confronted their hypocrisy and challenged their man-made traditions. 
He threatened their power. He made them look bad in front of the crowds. And so their pride blinded them to the truth about Jesus that their own scripture testified to. And we see this same arrogance today. We see that among intellectuals who proclaim evolution as the only scientific view and ridicule anyone who believes in the Bible must be a flat earth, uneducated country bumpkin. Remember that debate between Answers in Genesis founder Ken Ham and Bill Nye, the so-called science guy? Bill Nye often disparagingly referred to your scientist as if Ham had hired them to support his unscientific views. Even though Ken Ham repeatedly pointed out that there are many men with PhDs who believe the biblical account of creation but have no connection with answers in Genesis, Nye persisted in his put-down. And of course, Ken Ham repeatedly said, there is a book. There is a book. I don't know if you saw that debate, but there, uh, that, was, that was his best answer all night. There is a book referring to the Bible. Tells us exactly about creation. But Bill Nye is a true fool. He attributes God's intricately designed creation to pure chance. It happens today. The same as these leaders putting down those who believe in Jesus Christ. And then there's a third one, and that's Nicodemus. He's not really a group here, but it's the third person here. Nicodemus registers a mild defense of Jesus, a disagreement with his fellow leaders, but he was just put down by them as well. Nicodemus, whom John reminds us had come to Jesus before, who was one of them, a Pharisee, said, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? And this led to their put down in verse 52, Art thou also a Galilean? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Now, I would say some commentators argue that we never are sure that Nicodemus came to genuine faith in Christ. But, you know, when his courageous act of helping Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus later on in, uh, in John chapter 19 indicates that I think he did finally believe. But here we cannot be sure whether he's, where he's at in that process. He's at least sympathetic toward Jesus, and he's concerned about the irrational hostility that he saw in his fellow leaders there t- that they took toward him. And so he registers a mild objection to their murderous at- intent, and when they vilify him as being a Galilean, he says no more. He could see that they weren't in the mood for a rational discussion. But his point was valid. In contradiction of the law they purported to uphold, they were judging a man without even hearing his case. And also they're put down, search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. That was incorrect. Remember Jonah? Remember Nahum? And there were other prophets who had come out of Galilee, but they were so upset with the direction they saw things going that they were not using any kind of sound reason but illogical ridicule. This is what happens often when Christians take a stand. A college student recalls an agnostic 
philosophy professor who told her class that Jesus never claimed to be God. So this student, he raised his hand and said, well, what about when he said, I and the Father are one? Or what about when he told his disciples, he who has seen me has seen the Father? And rather than deal honestly with this objection, the professor ridiculed her or him by asking, what Bible are you reading, the Catholic Bible or the Protestant Bible? Well, the class laughed at that, and the student's point was brushed aside. And even though this professor taught the logical fallacy of arguments that attacked, attacked one's character rather than answering the argument, we see her doing exactly that same thing. And we see a lot of that going on in our presidential election campaign too. People attacking character rather than dealing with the issues. She used that one against this student to dodge the uncomfortable truth that Jesus did in fact claim to be God. And these Pharisees were ridiculing Nicodemus because he made an objection to what they were talking about. They ridiculed him. Now, I want to conclude with five practical lessons that we can glean from these divided responses to Jesus' clear gospel invitation. And there in your notes you have spaces Like for one word, okay? It's not the whole thing there. I've given you one key word uh, to, to write down. And these are things you will face as you witness to others about Jesus. These are the things you're going to face. And I'm not trying to scare you, but I want you to be prepared. I want you to go in the power of the Holy Spirit. The first one is, lesson one, the clearest gospel presentation in the world will not result in conversions unless the Holy Spirit opens blind eyes. Blind eyes. That's what you're going to face. You're going to face people that just can't see it. They've been blinded by the the God of this world. Jesus said here, had not said anything gross or controversial. Like in chapter 6, he said some things that were kind of controversial. Unless you eat, my body and drink my blood? Well, that doesn't, you know, people have a hard time processing that. It was nothing wrong with it, but true to his claim to be able to cause rivers of living water to flow from those who believed in him, that was a claim that only God could make. But it was a wonderful open invitation to all. He said, any man, and it was not inherently divisive, but while there are some mild intellectual agreement. Oh yeah, he's a prophet. Uh, He is the Christ. Uh, There was some amazement. Never has a man spoken this way as this man speaks. And even some hesitant support from Nicodemus. There was no clear response of faith in Jesus. There was still confusion. There was still misunderstanding, even aggressive hostility. Satan blinds people to the light of the gospel Uh, of the glory of Christ. And so saving faith is always a God thing. We need to pray for him to open blind eyes. Pray that God will open the blind eyes of those you witness to. Here's another practical lesson I believe we can take from this passage. And that is lesson two. The human heart apart from God's grace 
is helplessly, hopelessly incapacitated by sin. Now, I hope you realize what I said in there, by God's grace. Because man is not helplessly, hopelessly incapacitated by sin necessarily, but it's apart from God's grace they are. It's but by the grace of God that we're here tonight. That we trusted Christ as our Savior. And it's by the grace of God that those you witness to are going to trust Christ and overcome that so-called helpless, hopeless incapacitation of sin. You know, pride is often the main sin that keeps people from Christ. And that was true of these Pharisees here. Learning and knowledge are good if they point you to the majesty and greatness of God. And they will humble your heart, but they are dangerous if they lead you to pride over how much you know. You know, people say, well, I don't want to believe that nonsense. I, I know a lot more than that. And they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Even so-called intellectuals are futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts are, doctor, are darkened. So salvation is always the gift of God's grace. Sin. You're going to face people that have sin problems. You're going to face people that have blind eyes. They have sin problems. Thirdly, lesson three is expect to be ridiculed when you take a stand for Christ. You're going to be accused of being narrow-minded, bigoted, homophobic, anti-intellectual, unscientific, and probably a lot more labels. And if they treated Jesus this way, they will treat his servants the same way. So you can count that as an honor, but you can count on it. You're going to be ridiculed. Blind eyes, sin, being ridiculed. And then the fourth practical lesson, I believe, is people are quick to hide behind excuses rather than dig deeper in the search of the truth that might threaten their worldview. People hide behind excuses. People don't want to face their sin. They don't want to face their rebellion against God. And so rather than investigating the truth about Jesus, they'd rather hide behind some flimsy excuses. You know, evolution proves that the Bible is not true. Uh, Or the Bible, here's one, The Bible is full of contradictions. How many times have you heard that one? That's a flimsy excuse. Or how can a good God allow innocent children to suffer? You know, and the list will go on and on. You could probably think of many more excuses that people will use not to face their sin and rebellion against God. I think maybe a good answer to many of those kind of questions would be, if I can give you a reasonable answer to that problem, would you submit your life to Jesus? But people are quick to hide behind excuses. So you have blind eyes, you have sin, you have being ridiculed and excuses. And number five is, Jesus does not allow neutrality. To be neutral is to be against him. 
Neutrality. People say, well, I'm just going to be neutral on this. No, that's not one of your choices. You're either for him or against him. People who held favorable opinions about Jesus. Oh, he's a prophet. He's the Christ. They were on the side of the truth, but there's no indication they were committed to him. Nicodemus would eventually come out of the closet for Christ. And we must as well. Jesus warns us in Mark 8, 38, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also the Son of Man will be ashamed when he cometh in glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he promises the suffering church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. He says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Be faithful. So we're going to face these things when we witness for Christ, and we need to take a bold stand for him. Jesus is going to cause division. He's going to cause division in those that you speak to. He's going to cause division in your families. I've known, and perhaps this has happened to you, You've trusted Christ as your Savior. You've taken a stand for Christ. And people in your family don't, under, don't understand that. They say, oh, you've been brainwashed. What are you, ta- oh, you know, what are you on? They won't listen to you. Because there's blind eyes. There's sin. There's ridicule. There's excuses. There's an attempt to be neutral. But those things won't work. Take a stand for Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven.